and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I don't know how you do it, Bob, but every time you're up here to read Scripture, we always give you the hard names. <laughs> do, we, do we have an invitation song, Bob? Eight hundred. Invitation song is going to be eight hundred. Uh, tonight we're going to continue our study of uh, of the judges. Tonight we're going to be looking specifically at the time that Jephthah was uh, was a judge over Israel, and we'll begin with a word of prayer. We're going to be looking at Judges ten eleven, beginning of uh, Judges twelve tonight. Father, thank you for all the blessings that we have in Christ. And thank You for giving us this Word, Father, that as we read it, we can't help but, but see You pointing all fingers of history towards the birth of Your Son and the life of our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. It's to Him, Father, that, that we, we devote ourselves becoming like Him in all things as His disciples, to Your glory and to Your honor. And as we study this life tonight, Father, and especially the difficult parts of the story of Jephthah, we ask You to give us eyes and ears in order to have understanding and insight into these words and to understand at a, at a profound level, Father, the, the issues of idols, not only in His culture but in ours. And so, Father, we ask You to bless us in this way. In the name of Jesus, Amen. There's a story about a CEO who takes on a new job, and as the new CEO is coming in, the outgoing CEO says to him, you know, this is a really tough job. It's uh, hard to know what to do at times, especially when you don't have a lot of information or there's not a lot of precedence. Sometimes you're going to make wrong choices. You will mess up. And when that happens, I've prepared three sealed envelopes for you. I have left them on, in the top drawer of the desk. The first time that you make a mistake, open number one. The second time you make a mistake, open number two. And then the third time and so on. Well, uh, for the first few months, this new CEO is doing everything right in the business, making great decisions. Everybody's behind him. But then he makes his first mistake. He goes to the drawer. He opens up envelope one. And the message reads, blame me. Which means that uh, he's going to blame the outgoing, the old CEO. And he does this. And this is... Uh, okay, because it's the old CEO's fault. He made these mistakes. I inherited these problems. Everybody says, okay, it works out pretty well. Things go fine for a while, but then he makes his second mistake. And so he goes to the drawer. He opens up envelope number two, and this time he reads, blame the board. And he does. He says, you know, it's really the board's fault. The board has been in a mess for a long time. They're dysfunctional. They don't communicate. They don't have vision. I inherited them. They're the problem. Everybody says, okay. They get the, make sense. They get the message. Things go fine for a while, and then he makes his third big mistake. So he goes to the drawer and opens up envelope number three, and the message reads, prepare three envelopes. The moral is that at some point in a long line of mistakes, you have to begin taking a hard look at self. In Judges chapter 10, verse 6, we read again this same cycle beginning over and over again. It happens again in Judges 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, which is sort of a, a euphemism for idolatry. They served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. 
And again, God acts. He became angry with them, verse 7. He sells them. Circle that word in your Bible or write it down on the outline. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. Now, during the time of Gideon, we thought things were pretty bad. We thought that with all of the oppression that was happening, that was, you know, as, the, as uh, the, the enemies of God were coming into the land and destroying the cattle and destroying the wheat fields and all the food stuffs, and the people were forced into caves and into the clefts of rocks and the sides of mountains to live, we thought that's about as bad as it can get. And then Jephthah rolls, at the time of Jephthah rolls onto the scene, the people are in that cycle again. They're in that, di- uh, that downward spiral uh, uh, spiritual downward thrust again. And now the Philistines and the Ammonites are shattering them and crushing them. Because of an immediate culture saturated with idols. Idols wherever you look. Idols of every sort and of every form. Israel forsakes God. And this old cycle just begins again of you know returning to God and then spiraling down. And then... Back up to God and then spiraling down. And this time God speaks as one that's sort of weary of that cycle. He reminds them, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manites? God says, did I not save you from all of these people? What God is doing is reestablishing His identity in their heart. I will no longer save you. Go cry out to the idols that you love and see if they will save you. This is what God says to His people. Weary with the cycle of of, of, of worshiping God and then adopting the idols and, and spiraling down into injustice and oppression and then only to find themselves in trouble to call out to God again. He says, this time you cry out to the idols and see if they will save you. But, but Israel is going to make a go at change. And so they get rid of all of the foreign gods among them. They get rid of the idols. But these Ammonites that have been shattering them and crushing them, shoulder to shoulder with the Philistines, they come and it's about time for them to have a fight with Israel. And it's here that we're introduced to Jephthah, who is referred to as a mighty war, warrior and a leader of a band of, and maybe your Bible says, adventurers. It's a wishful euphemism for pirates. These guys or organized crime folk. And here is, here is Jephthah. He's the mighty warrior. He's the leader of these adventurers. And the, the leaders of Israel talk him into getting into the fight with the children of Ammon. And if he's victorious, he can be their ruler. He accepts their terms. He decides that he's going to write a letter first. He's going to try diplomacy. He sends a message to the kings of the Ammonites. And he asks, why fight? Why fight? The Ammonite king said he's only going to take back what had been taken from him, what had once belonged to him and his people. And Jephthah says, no, you've got the facts all wrong. And he sets the historical record straight. But here's the thing. And you know this if you've ever been with a bully. If you have an army and you're looking for a fight that you think you can win, then there are no arguments that carry weight to bring to peace. And Ammon wants to fight. And so Israel and Ammon go to war with Jephthah being victorious. We read in Judges 11, verse 32, that he went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. And as he's coming back from the victory, not all is going to be celebration. And this is where we deal with the terrible vow that Jephthah must fulfill. But before we get to that vow, let's think about a couple of lessons from 
from this period of time of the judge of, Jep- uh, of Jephthah. The first lesson is that it's a, it's a danger to be treating idols as God and God as idols. Treating idols as God and God as an idol. In Judges 10, beginning in verse 7, he sells them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. Circle that word sold. It's a significant word. What does it mean that God sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites? You know, uh, from time to time, I drive a car or I drive a pickup that gets some age on it, it gets some miles on it, gets some wear and tear on it, and it's time to, to get a new vehicle, to upgrade, to get something that's a little newer, that's going to last a little longer and hopefully be a little bit more comfortable. So one of the things that you do is you trade in that vehicle or you sell it. And what, do you, what are you doing if you take that used car and you sell it to another person? You're basically saying to that person, you can do with this car whatever you want. Now that quite frankly, is what's happening here when in verses 7 and 8, we're told that God sold Israel into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. He basically means that God has removed His protection from Israel in order for their enemies to be able to come in and to do with Israel whatever they want. And what they want is to fight. And what they want is to oppress. And what they want is to enslave and to take the land back. And the point here, as well as, as well as throughout the Bible when it comes to idolatry, is that idolatry for a while feels pretty good. But after a while, you know what idolatry becomes? Idolatry becomes a form of slavery. Adoption of idols always leads to slavery. And here's the thing about idols and, 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 and their nature, their character. Idols are not merciful. Idols are not compassionate. We go to them thinking that they have an answer for our deepest needs. And as people turn to idols for what they think they can get out of the idol, what they begin to experience is an enslavery to that idol. Money becomes the highest priority. Sex becomes the highest priority. Popularity and acclaim become the highest priority. Those things will begin to take over your life and run you rather than you ruling over them. And what happens is that humans begin to do the same thing with God. They begin to treat God as an idol. Not not going to God for the sake of God and for the worth of God and the beauty of God and the graciousness and the mercy of God, but they go to God for what they can get out of Him. And so we treat idols as God and we treat God as an idol. And that's why we need saviors. And the saviors are surprising. Especially here in Judges. If you thought Gideon was surprising, think of Jephthah. His mother was a prostitute, comes from this incredibly dysfunctional family. His, uh, his father was, uh, was one who had lots of sons, and he had them through lots of women. And the legitimate wives of the father banded together, and they decided to force Jephthah out of the family because his mother was a prostitute. She was not a legal wife. She was not even a reputable woman. They're pushing him out so that he has no share of the inheritance. And so Jephthah as a judge, doesn't fit the mold his culture most naturally thinks leaders are derived from. And yet the leaders of Israel see their future hope in him. And this is why they agree that with his rescue, they will allow him to rule over them. 
Now, he's not risen to be a judge in spite of his background experiences, that these are things that he overcame in order, and he sort of hid them, didn't include them on the resume, made sure that he paid off everybody who knew anything about it to, to, to keep their mouths shut so that the word did not get out as his pedigree and his lineage. No, he's not risen to be a judge in spite of his background experiences. His experiences are the very things that have shaped him for this moment in history. His life has prepared him to bring rescue to the people of God, although they are as surprised as he is. And as we read the story of Jephthah, we can't help but see a faint pointer of another Savior who grew up in an obscure little village, grew up as obscure as the village he grew up in, in which he was raised. You know, one of the first reactions to Jesus is what? Jesus begins His ministry out of Capernaum, begins to call His first disciples. What is one of the first reactions to Jesus? Philip comes to Nathanael and says, I think we found Him. He's from Nazareth. And and Nathanael asks, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Jesus' closest friend, John, at the end of His life, or towards the end of His life, is reflecting back on, on the Jesus that He walked with for three years and has served all of His life. He reminds us in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. In John chapter 7 verse 5, even His own brothers did not believe in Him. But this life of rejection prepared Jesus for the greatest rejection of all, leading to rescue, a rescue yet to come when in Isaiah 53, He was despised and He was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Jesus' death on the cross rescued not only humans, but the entire universe from bondage to sin and brought everyone into a peace with God that He is Lord over. And His whole life led to that moment. But what is really important as we continue the story of Jephthah is that we also see behind the idol curtain. Everyone has seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. One of the most I just think it's one of the greatest movies ever. Made back in 1939, it was one of the, 1939 was a great year. Nominated for six Academy Awards, ending uh, up in second place to Gone with the Wind. That actually took the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Movie that year. The second place was The Wizard of Oz. And you know the story: Dorothy, Kansas, the tornado, the dream. She's knocked out. She has this dream. She ends up in this technicolor world known as Oz. There are witches, and there are there's a, a scarecrow, and there's a tin man, and there's a lion, and there are uh, some of the scariest things ever: flying monkeys and and munchkins. And there's uh, a point in that movie, I think it's one of the most poignant moments in the entire movie, after you've gone through all of the stress of Dorothy landing in this place. And who wants to live in a dream world, especially, you know, the one that is weird as that? It's a, it's a scary thing. We're stressed. We're anxious. How is Dorothy going to get home? She meets these strange friends who turn out to be the truest friends ever. But she is sent by this wizard on a, on a, on a trip in which it looks like a kamikaze type of of mission, that she's not going to come back. And thus Oz is not going to have to fulfill his promise of getting her home. And the most poignant moment in the entire movie is when Dorothy, Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion return to the Emerald City with the broom of the Wicked Witch of the West. And while they're arguing with the wizard about his promise to take them home, Toto, the little dog, pulls back the curtain to reveal the great and the terrible Oz who just turns out to be a middle-aged man who refers to himself as the great humbug. 
He's just a weak middle-aged man with a lot of levers and buttons that produce fire and smoke, but no real power. And the phrase that came out of that movie, see behind the curtain, to look behind the curtain, the man behind the curtain, and similar such statements came to mean to reveal what wants to stay hidden or to reveal the real source of power behind the curtain. Now in essence, this is what the infamous vow of Jephthah teaches us about the danger of idols. Uh, Jephthah has tried to reason with the king of Ammon. His wife fight. We have no hyster- his, uh, historical, uh, we have no legal, we have no theological precedent for this fight. Why fight? But Ammon has an army. He's already set up. They're encamped. They're ready to take on Israel on both sides of the Jordan River. And they want to fight. They think they can win. The arguments are not going to weigh very much with him. And diplomacy is, is failing. The war is inevitable. And the war comes. And Jephthah and the king of Ammon go to war. And then in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh. He passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And there he advanced against the Ammonites. The Holy Spirit of God. This is the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah and he moves against the Ammonites. The Spirit of God comes upon him and he knows it's time now to make the move. It's time now to go to war. And the victory is his. But then we read verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. I step out of that just for a minute. You know, people talk about the validity and the, the truthfulness of the Bible. And it's, you know, one of the things that's most impressive about the Bible is it includes some of the darker side of human beings. It tells the truth of what humans are really like. It doesn't have this Pollyannish view of human beings. It doesn't have a Pollyannish view of what it means to serve God. It talks about human beings and their hearts and their souls and their minds and their experiences in the real world and what it means to follow God, good or bad. Right or wrong, the Bible teaches us through these lives. So I take us back to verse 30. What is that if? The Spirit has come upon him, right? The Spirit of God has come upon him. Jephthah should already know that he is going to take that battle because the presence of the Spirit of God is going to give him that victory, or at least he should. God gives him the victory. They go to war. He gives him the victory. Jephthah returns home to Mizpah victorious. And the similar course of events throughout the book to this point always lead to several years of peace in Israel, right? The war has been won. The judge comes back. He begins to rule. Israel has peace. That's not the story right now. The enemy has been defeated. Peace is supposed to return to the land. But the first thing that comes out of the door of his house in this vow that he has made to God First thing that comes out of his house, he's going to sacrifice to God. It is his only child, his little girl, an unmarried daughter. You know the story. She goes off to the hills to mourn for two months. And she will never marry. She will never bear children for her family. Her name will not carry on. And then we read verse 39, which is one of the most difficult verses, I think, in the entire Old Testament. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. 
What in the world did this man do? The commentators try to be kind. There's one explanation that says, you know what he really meant? He meant an animal. The problem is that it's really unlikely that his house would have had an animal on the inside. They didn't treat dogs the way that we treat dogs. They didn't treat him as a beloved member of the family. And if he's a beloved member of the family, it's kind of hard to believe, but yet we're talking about this because it's in the Bible anyway. It's hard to believe that you know he's thinking, this is what's going to please God. I'm going to give him my prized German shepherd. The second problem is that the word in Hebrew is not in the... Uh, it's, instead of being masculine or feminine, it's in the neuter. It's not in the neuter, which it should be if he's referring to an animal. It's not. And the third problem is that if he meant an animal, and that's what he was thinking in his heart all along, that if there's this animal that comes out of my house, I'm going to give it to God. When his daughter comes out, he would never have thought that that was binding on this daughter because he was, he was always thinking about an animal. But that's not what happens. A second explanation, trying to clean it up a little bit, was that she was condemned to perpetual virginity. That the two-month reprieve uh, led into a lifelong singlehood state of non-marriage, non-family, uh, a perpetual virgin. The problem is, is that those two months, that two-month reprieve does not make sense unless he literally sacrificed her. It appears to me that Jephthah meant a human sacrifice. Maybe he thought of a servant. The big question, though, is, is why? Why, why is he doing this? Why? Especially in light of what Torah teaches. Deuteronomy 12, verse 31. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And here is where I think we look behind the curtain of what it means to have an idol or the influence or the infection of an idol in the human heart. The first is desensitization. The culture of idols is violent. God recognizes that and even speaks to His people. Do not worship Me the way that they worship their idols. They do all kinds of detestable things. They even burn which is inclusive of something that's already terrible, they even do this, burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. The idols of the pagan culture were about violence and about blood and about cruelty. And this, this one example out of the life of Jephthah is one of the most vivid examples of how a human can actually profess to have faith in God, but allow the idols to live right next door in their heart. I mean, think about the idols of our culture. I've mentioned three. Think about money, for instance. Think about what happens when money becomes the idol when we profess faith to God. It, it, it affects our worship. It affects the way that we view human beings. It affects the way that we think about the expanding ministries of the church. It, it, it's the way that we think about God Himself in terms of power and security and God's promises. And yet, profess faith, profess faith, profess faith. Going to worship, going to worship, going to worship. It's the same thing with power or with acclaim. 
Think about, think about the 15 minutes of fame that people are just hungering for these days. They will do absolutely anything to be famous for 15 minutes. They will be famous even if it means that they're made a joke and a laughingstock in, the, in, the, in the, the majority of the culture. But because that idol has enslaved them to the idea that they've got to have a claim, then it takes over. And yet these folks talk about belief in God and, and faith in God and, and, and worship and, and the beauty of, of God's creation. Is it possible that a human can profess faith and completely ignore the will of God when it comes to money or sex or power or popularity or acclaim or achievement or sex or any of these things? It is. And Jephthah is the result of that. It is the result of someone saying, yes, God is God but at the same time guarding the idols that are in his heart. That's why Paul says to the church in Ephesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off that old self. Don't worship me the way they worship their gods, their idols, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, the one thing that we have to realize about the culture that we live in is that we are more affected by our culture than we realize. And then the second is distrust. The high view of God is diminished because of the idols. The idols that infiltrated Israel have also infected Jephthah's vision of God. God, unlike the idols, cannot and will not be bought off with this kind of sacrifice or any kind of sacrifice. The sacrifice he desires is the human heart that is loving him for his grace and compassion and mercy. It is loving God. It is living a righteous life because of what God has done. It's, it's, it's living obediently to his will and trusting him because he's shown himself to be compassionate and gracious and merciful and saving and trustworthy. God, unlike the idols, is not going to be bought off with this kind of sacrifice. The sacrifice He desires is the human heart loving Him for His grace and His compassion and mercies. That's why Paul says to the church in Rome, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why do you offer your body as a living sacrifice? Because God has given you His mercy that you can see and experience. Jephthah must have thought that the deal needed to be closed. That God needed to be impressed. That he doesn't really trust God to give him the victory. He's got to sweeten the deal. He's beginning to understand God like the idols. He's treating the idols as God and God as the idols. He must have thought that God needed to be impressed, that the deal needed to be closed, that it needed to be sweetened. If not, then why not call it off? If not, why not call it off and confess the mistake to God? I see the error. I, I see the problem. I see the idol. I see, I see what I've done. Forgive me. The problem is, it's hard to trust an idol. You've got to make the idol happy. You've got to give to the idol, can't take any more. You've got to sacrifice to the idol. You've got to sacrifice and sacrifice, and you've got to bleed, and you've got to bleed, and you've got to suffer, and you've got to suffer more and more and more until the idol is pleased 
And Jephthah is thinking of God as an idol. He doesn't trust God. And in his mistrust, he is trapped. I know that this is one of, for me, it's one of the hardest passages in the entire Bible to understand and, and especially to apply because it seems so foreign to the way that we think about life and think about our family. But here's the thing. Jephthah is just an over-the-top example, even though it literally, physically happened. He is an over-the-top example to get our attention of the problem of idols, even when we say we're disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. That's That's the reason it's in here. It's to help us to understand that the reason that we worship is to drive the idols out of our heart. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 34? He says, come magnify God with me. Come magnify the Lord with me. It means to enlarge God in your heart, your understanding of His character and and His, His nature in the entire universe. To expand that and expand that so that it drives the idols out of the empty spaces in your heart. That's why we worship. That's why we make much of God. That's why worship doesn't just begin at 10.15 on Sunday morning and end at 11.30. Worship is what we do every day when we come into the presence of God. We are driving the idols out of our heart. We are expanding the knowledge of God and the place of God, not only to drive those idols out, but to fall deeper and deeper and deeper in majestic awe of His greatness. And to understand the kind of life that He is shaping us for and fashioning us. And not to be trapped in the blind spot of idols where we don't think we have them. Bob's going to lead us in that song right now, Song 800. And maybe you're struggling with some of these things in your, in your life. Maybe what you need is um, prayers of the church, counsel of, of, of your spiritual leaders or shepherds to help you, to help you overcome the damage and the devastation, the shattering and the crushing that the enemies of God were doing to Israel. It's what the idols do. They crush and they shatter. To stop that, to stop that cycle in your own life. And to stop treating the idols as God and stop treating God as an idol, but to see Him for who He is as the supreme sovereign of the universe who in His grace has given us the gift of forgiveness and of love and of life eternal, and peace and joy, and His Spirit and His Word to transform us into the kind of human beings that we have always been intended by Him to be. And if that describes you tonight, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing. What a friend we have in Jesus.